Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Roll Pod, an Alabama sports podcast from Bama 247. I'm Cody Goodwin. Joined today again, fellow staff writer Mike Rodak. Mike, this is the 17th show in this Bama 247 podcast feed, and it's going to preview the third Saturday in October. How do we feel about that? 17 is a good number because that's where Nick Saban's at right now. Um, 17 seasons. You know, it's not always, even though it's called the third Saturday in October, there's been a few years recently especially there has not happened on the third saturday in october it's been the fourth a couple years so so what you're saying is that one of the greatest college football rivalries of all time because sometimes a fraud fraud. it's a fraud you know (laughs) i don't even know why they play it if it's not on the third saturday in october i mean it's just not authentic so i mean this year it actually works out um i feel like last year it was on the fourth saturday i'm surprised or maybe it was the year before. I, I'm surprised that it uh, it got by this year. A lot of a uh, lot of numbers here. Third Saturday in October, 17th podcast. It's only October 19th, Mike, as we're recording this. But the month of November is approaching fast. Crunch some numbers in the month of October only, or excuse me, month of November is only 30 days long. Um, but it includes 16 days worth of football, men's and women's basketball games. That includes a stretch of eight game days and 10 calendar days between November 10th and 19th. Uh, men's and women's basketball both play on the 10th. Football plays Kentucky on the 11th. Women's basketball plays Moorhead State on the 12th. Men's basketball plays South Alabama on the 14th. Women's basketball again on the 16th. Men's basketball again on the 17th. Football hosts Chattanooga on the 18th. And then women's basketball plays Arkansas Little Rock on the 19th. If you include soccer and volleyball, which we don't cover, obviously, as nearly in-depth as football and basketball, but some folks on our board are interested in those sports. 20 of the 30 days in November will feature an Alabama sporting event. Are you ready for this mess of a schedule? That's what Greg Byrne always says, is that people ask him and they say football season must be busy. But really, September and October are not too bad um, because it's only football and volleyball and soccer. And even then, it's regular season soccer. So I remember, like last year, you had soccer make the the final four, uh, you know, the college cup, the women's college cup, at the same time that basketball and football were going on. Um, you know, so you start getting into some busy times, especially with baseball and softball having kind of their their fall periods, and um, you know, football is still obviously king, but this is starting the busy time of year. Um, 
you know, Thanksgiving week's always tough because you have Thanksgiving, first of all, but you also have the Iron Bowl, which is a pretty big deal. You might have heard. Um, and then usually basketball is off on a, a tournament. Um, and this year they're going down to Florida and um, they'll play Ohio State. They could play Oregon. Um, so you just kind of got to deal with it. And then, you know, December is bowl season and um, National Signing Day. And there's there's always a lot going on that time of year. I'm used to, um, obviously, I'm the new guy on the beat for those who haven't figured that out yet. But I'm used to like, you know, November being like a combination of like football and wrestling, um, you know, media days, early competitions, but then also like, you know, big Iowa and Iowa State games. Um, you know, I've covered a lot of high school football, too. So it's like state championship games are always the week before Thanksgiving. So it's like Thanksgiving was like the week where I got like a breath. And now that I'm down here, it doesn't seem like I'm going to get that breath at all. Um, which is fun, right? Like that's what you sign up for, but it's also like, I'm, you know, looking down at the schedule and I'm looking at the month of October, like all written out on my calendar. And I'm just like, Whoa, this is going to, this is going to be a little bit of a beast. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, it's, it's kind of, we're, we're used to the same football schedule too, because the way it's been with the sec West, you can have a good idea of when they're going to play whom, um, you know, Tennessee obviously is this week every year pretty much lsu is always the first week in november auburn's always where they are some of that's going to change you know when they go to the the temporary eight game schedule next year and then whatever permanently they decide in, in 2025 like we may not play tennessee uh every year and maybe there comes a day and they've talked about this where they push things up um and so the season starts the last week of august and then you're ending before Thanksgiving and you have conference championships the week after Thanksgiving. So um, I, I don't know if this is always going to be this way. Um, basketball <laughs> wise, you know, it, it is kind of where it starts and basketball is a long season, especially with the way this team has played. And, you know, they've gone fairly deep into March two of the last three years. Um, I mean, this is October and we're already starting to talk about basketball and we could still be talking about basketball into April potentially like that's that's pretty long time it's uh it's gonna be a lot um but we're ready for it we're built for it at least I hope we are wanted to start today's show um little bit of talk about basketball right Alabama started practice already for the 23-24 season Mike you and Talti were in Birmingham for the SEC men's basketball media days the women's basketball media days are going on as we're recording this um, so we'll keep some small tabs on that. But coming into this season, Alabama is going to look very different from how it looked a year ago. Brandon Miller, Noah Clowney, Charles Bediaco are all in the NBA now. Looking at the Tides roster, I think you can kind of break down the roster into three tiers, right? You've got the key returners, Mark Sears, Rylan Griffin, Nick Pringle. You've got some big transfer ads, right? Grant Nelson, Aaron Estrada, Latrell Wrightsell. And we'll throw in Muhammad Wagu in there as well. And then true freshman, Jaron Stevenson, Sam Walters, um, Chris Parker, Mohammed, how do you pronounce his name? Diabade. Diabade. Okay. All four-star prospects. So we're going to have to learn how to pronounce that sooner rather than later. Um, where do we start with this year's team? Like what, what's our, what's some of the early vibes that you've gotten or early returns that you've kind of heard around the program? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously much different and that's you no know, Nate has kind of said, Nate also said it's kind of the way of college basketball is you're creating a team from scratch every year. I mean, when there's only, 13 players to begin with and you have as much turnover as you have in the portal every year now i mean a large percentage of your team is going to be new every year especially with the way alabama has been kind of matriculating guys into the nba pretty quickly 
Um, you know, not only this year with Clowney and Miller after one year, but think back the year before that with J.D. Davison going to the NBA after one year. So um, things just kind of move right along and you're building a new team. And then on top of that, Oates loses all three of his assistant coaches and you're hiring an entire staff, too. So everything's going to look different. Um, and, you know, I, the style of play, I don't think will look different. I think it's still going to be Nate Oates' system. I think that's you know, came up yesterday. It's, you know, you kind of have to coach the coaches on your system and, um, you know, Austin Clonch coming in from, uh, Nichols state and, um, Ryan Pannone coming in from the NBA, like they're learning what Nate wants to do. And Nate even said they've offered good ideas, um, kind of back the other direction too. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be Oates' system and they're trying to find players to fit that. And it really starts with Grant Nelson. I think that was the key move that they made that, you know, if this team's going to go back to where they were last year and win the SEC and be a high seed in the tournament, et cetera, like that was the player they needed to make that happen. Um, so he's, you know, top three in, in terms of the 24-7 transfer rankings, you know, as a star player at North Dakota State, uh, positionless player, you know, as Nate Oates has talked about where he's 6'11", but can really handle the ball, um, face up to the basket, drive, shoot, not your traditional big man at all. And, you know, I think he might start kind of at the three or the four or the five, but there might be games where he's handling the ball and, and kind of playing like a guard too. So um, it really starts with him and, you know, the big reason why, and he was in the NBA draft pool this year, but took his name out because the big thing against him was his shooting and his shooting the last couple of years was not great. Um, so if he can get that percentage up, you know, by playing in Nate's system where there's going to be a lot of opportunities to do that, then he can position himself to be, you know, I'm sure a first-round pick in the NBA if he can do that. So, um, you know, I don't want to say they're going to live and die by Grant Nelson's three, but I think that's it's going to play a big role in their success, just like last year when Brandon Miller was hot, like they were pretty much unbeatable. Uh, when Brandon Miller kind of fell off, you know, in the tournament at the end, that offense was struggling to find somebody else that could score, and um, that was a problem. That's partly why they, you know, they lost when they did. So, um, that's going to play a large role, but I, it does help that they bring in a guy like Aaron Estrada, who's also a very strong, you know, scorer from what he's done at Hofstra. And, you know, you combine him with Nelson, with Sears, you can have one of those guys have an off night, maybe even two. And if the other guy's having a, a pretty good night shooting, then you might still be in good shape. Uh, so that allows them a little bit to have that flexibility uh, with all that said, though, it's, you know, the transfer portal is still, I don't say a shot in the dark, but it's still a little bit of a projection. Like you're trying to see how Aaron Estrada goes from being the player of the year in the Colonial Athletic Conference and Hofstra to the SEC. You're trying to see how Grant Nelson goes from North Dakota State to the SEC. And for some guys, that will be a seamless transition and they'll look the same that they did before. For other guys, they might get exposed a little bit. That's kind of what the portal does. So how that all shakes out, I, nobody really knows. I think the early returns have certainly been really positive. And, you know, we heard a lot of good things from Nate Oates yesterday about Strata in particular. So, um, you know, those are the two main players, I would say, uh, kind of looking at this team that you're going to want to know and you, you should really need to know. Yeah. Um a lot of experience, a lot of guys who have, I mean, they played a lot of ball, but like you mentioned, not quite SEC ball. Um, some of these true freshmen too, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious. I, have you heard it all from notes just, or Oates about 
how much they'll play, how, you know, how key they will be to this year's team. Cause I, you know, you bring in a lot of guys and I feel like the Nate Oates effect, right? Like you, he's sending guys to the NBA pretty quickly. That's probably going to help him on the recruiting trail, you know, of these, you know, all these true freshman or four-star prospects, believe two of them, um, Stevenson and Walters were both top 100 guys, um, you know, in today's game, like those guys usually step in and make a pretty big impact right away. Do you, I mean, do you see those guys or any of those guys maybe playing, you know, not, I mean, not just playing, but playing probably a lot this season or how, how did, how are they going to mix in? Stevenson seems like the most likely, um, and he's the last guy to come in. He was originally a 2024 prospect who was from North Carolina. It looked like maybe that's where he would go. And then Alabama was able to come in and get him over North Carolina, but get him to reclassify to this current class. So he came in pretty late. I mean, it was in June of this current year and, you know, adds six eleven, six ten, 6'10", and a guy who can stretch the floor a little bit and shoot, which is why, and not only that, he also wears number 15, just like Noah Clowney did. So that's kind of where you get the comparisons already from NATO. It's comparing him to Noah Clowney. And Clowney came in also a Carolina guy, South Carolina, kind of unheralded as a prospect. Nobody really knew too much about him, wasn't ranked very highly, wasn't on the sort of the AAU circuit as some guys are. Um, and he came in and worked really hard and was a really good student of the game and ended up starting right away for Alabama last year and became a top 15 pick in, uh, or top 20 pick in the NBA draft this past year. So, um, I mean, that's, I don't say that's, it's going to happen. It's going to replicate itself with Jaron Stevenson, but it seems like, that comparison is already being made. Pretty um, good case of development for, right. you know, Nate Oates to put that on a poster and carry it to the recruits, right? Right. And that's <laughs> I, between him and Herb Jones, like in terms of turning a player into something maybe more than they were when they came in, I think those are the two biggest accomplishments of the Nate Oates here. Like, I think it's great that they had Brandon Miller. He went to the NBA, but I think Brandon Miller could have gone to a lot of schools and he would have been a high NBA draft pick. Like he was a really talented player coming in. But in terms of like finding a guy, sort of a diamond in the rough, like Clowney, and then building him in one year into a first round NBA pick, that was, I think, one of the bigger accomplishments that Nate's done. Um, and again, Herb Jones coming in sort of as a, a guy nobody really knew about too much, you know, from rural Alabama. And four years later is, um, you know, going to the NBA and then, you know, he's a good NBA player now, too. So. You know, those two are, are pretty strong. Um, but, you know, I think Stevenson could start. You know, that's that seems like um, the distinct possibility right now. If you're looking at an early lineup, you know, just from what Nate's done before, if he does want to have a center on the floor to start, which he did most really all the year last year with Betty Ako, then that's either going to be Pringle or Wage, uh, Mohamed Wage, the, the West Virginia transfer. And then Stevenson could play that four, just like Clowney did last year. And you can honestly have Nelson play the three and kind of be that wing and shooter. And, I mean, again, he doesn't really have a position necessarily. And then your backcourt would be Sears and Estrada. And then your top guy off the bench would probably be Rylan Griffin. Or you can go a little bit smaller, and maybe you don't have Stevenson or Pringle on the court, but you have Nelson down there and you have Griffin on the floor as, a, as an extra guard. So, there's different ways to make that lineup. And, you know, for the first three years of Nate's tenure here, I mean, it would be a lot of different lineups game to game um, based on what the opponent, you know, what they needed matchup wise. They settled into more of a lineup last year where you kind of predict every night what it would be. 
Um, I don't know if that'll be the case again this year. I think Nate sometimes likes to have a, a defensive player in his opening lineup just to kind of set the tone and um, I say push people around, but kind of like, you know, you want to come out with some defense at the beginning of the game. And then maybe you have a shooter come off the bench. Once the other team might be a little bit tired and you have a fresh guy come in and you can make a few shots, um, you know, that can be a good thing too. So, and he always says this, that the best five players might not be your starting lineup there. There's, different strategies um, and having one of your best five players come off the bench. hundred percent. You mentioned guy like Grant Nelson, kind of, you know, not a clean one for one switch, but like probably going to be that Brandon Miller guy this year where he's, you know, maybe a little bit of a go-to score, kind of the the do everything guy. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Aaron Estrada. You wrote a story about him out of media days. Um, This is a guy that Alabama fans are probably going to need to know, not maybe quite as, heralded of a transfer as maybe Grant Nelson was. I know there were a lot of people that were following his recruitment in the off season. Um, what do people need to know about Aaron Estrada? Yeah. It adds something almost like what Sears added last year, which is a scoring, you know, combo guard. You can really, I think naturally Estrada is probably more of a two, but you know, with the way that Alabama plays, they don't always have a true point guard. You know, Sears is kind of in that same bucket. So it could be him taking the ball up the court. It could be Estrada. A lot of the times they're going to be in transition. It's not going to matter. Um, so I don't know if you want to call him a, a perfect point guard fit. He's, you know, he's going to be a scorer. He's going to be a shooter. Um, and I don't say they didn't have that last year. I mean, they certainly had something like that in Miller, but a little bit more of a true guard form. Like Miller was a little bit bigger. Um like a, a true shooting guard. I think Estrada is really, I don't say unique among the, the Nate Oates era, but he's, he's something a little bit different. I'm, I'm intrigued to see exactly what they can do with him. Um, and it's going to be interesting too. just, um, you have Latrell right. So, you know, another really talented um, shooter as well, coming off the bench, a good defensive player from Cal state Fullerton who's transferred in. Like, can you use all three of those on the court at the same time? Can you use Rylan Griffin? and and kind of do like a three or four guard lineup which sometimes they've done like they've gone really small so they have options you know because of the guys that they brought in but you know strata's bounced around um you know he's from jersey he ended up going to saint benedict's which is a pretty big program there for his last year and um ended up staying home actually for his, his first year of college at saint peter's you know which everybody remembers saint peter's from last year uh making their run in the tournament or two years ago i guess it would be um and you know, ended up going to Oregon and then went from Oregon to Hofstra for two years. And that's where he really kind of found himself, you know, at Hofstra, where he was the scorer and, you know, player of the year, both years there in the conference. And then he gets to transfer again. So this is his fourth school, his sixth, if you include the two high schools he went to. And that's like I even asked him yesterday. It's, it must be nice, like in the modern era where you can kind of bounce around and, and find the best fit for yourself. And he said, yeah, I mean, that's basically – what he's done and obviously potential for a really good fit here at Alabama. So, um, you know, the player who I think Nate really wanted, he was the first coach to call him uh, is what Estrada said. And, um, you know, like Nate usually does, he kind of lays out for players, like, here's how I'm going to get you to the NBA. And obviously there's a growing list of evidence. And I think there's even a PowerPoint that Nate Oates uses uh, (laughs) kind of, you know, um, here's all the players we put into the NBA. and Here's kind of what they did at Alabama. And the more you have that evidence to show players, it, it kind of snowballs. And, you know, it uh, 
I think this is a product of that. So, and Estrada even said, like, he was the only coach to even mention the NBA. And then a lot of the other coaches were just saying, like, here's what you can do for us now in college. And um, you kind of sell guys on, and I would say sell because it almost sounds disingenuous, but I think Nate, like, generally does care about, like, not just what you're going to do at Alabama, but can I make you into an, into an NBA player who's going to, you know, set yourself up and set your family up? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a element of, you know, salesmanship that comes with recruiting. And, you Mm -hmm. know, when you like you mentioned, when you got this growing evidence of, hey, I can bring you here, we can have success here and then I'll get you there. Um, You know, that's that's obviously going to help. That was that was Calipari's selling point and probably still is his selling point for a really long time out out of Kentucky. And Nate Oates is clearly starting to do the same thing here at Alabama. And and Nick Saban, too. I mean, that's something that Nick Saban likes to talk about is, you know, creating the jerseys in the media room after every game. Right. Yeah. It's here's what we've done. You know, here's all the billions of dollars that our players have made in, in the NFL. Um, and, you know, and Saban likes to tie it together, too. And so does Nate, for that matter, is saying um, if you're creating value for yourself um, in terms of your NFL career and your professional career, you're also creating value for the team here in the meantime. And it, it kind of goes hand in hand. And that's also been the point that Nate has made is um if the team's doing well and they're getting a lot of attention and you're a high seed and you're winning big games then that's going to draw more attention from scouts and the scouts are going to say well why are they winning those games and that you know the rising tide lifts all boats we've heard nate say that a few times too um and there's certainly been guys you know on that sweet 16 team three years ago like josh primo is the is the guy that nate likes to mention that probably benefited you know from being on that team and, and getting that sort of exposure. hundred percent. One last uh, basketball question before we shift gears to football last year, obviously very special for Alabama 31 and six won the sec regular season title won the sec tournament title. They were the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament ultimately bowed out in the sweet 16 to San Diego state, the eventual national runner up for whatever that's worth to you guys this year, though, Alabama finished to pick fifth again in the sec media poll. They will start the year ranked 24th in the AP poll. They will begin the 23-24 season against Wake Forest on October 29th, which is just 10 days away as of this recording. This team seems like it'll grow and change and kind of figure themselves out as the year unfolds. But what do you think is a reasonable expectation for this year's Alabama team? Yeah, I think I picked them. We did a 24-7 SEC poll. I think I picked them third in the conference, and I think that collectively was the result of the the 24-7 poll. So, of course, you know, we hate Alabama, right? So 247 likes Alabama more than we the actually media had them. Yeah, better than, you know, <laughs> but the regular media poll had them. So um, funny how that works sometimes. But, yeah, I think a top <laughs> four finish in the SEC um, is, I think, where I'd, I'd see them. Um, and it's it's tough. I mean, it's a basketball conference that has gotten better, certainly the last 10 years, last five years especially. And you have schools like – uh, Arkansas that's really risen under Eric Musselman. You have AM that in some ways came out of nowhere last year and was, you know, went all the way to the SEC championship game with Buzz Williams. And most of that team's back. I think they've lost only one starter and Wade Taylor's the preseason player of the year at AM. And then you have Kentucky, which had fallen off the last couple of years, but you know, they can snap their fingers and bring in three, four, five star kids pretty or you know, like multiple five star kids pretty quickly, and they've done that. Um, so, you know, they're always capable, like Kentucky is always going to have the talent. So, 
you, know, you can picture them being in the top four. And then Tennessee, too, is a, is a team that's returning some guys, Santiago Vescovi, Sakai Ziegler, who were pretty, two pretty big players for him last year. And Rick Barnes is a really good coach whose team's always going to be right up there. So, you know, those are kind of the top five teams. And that's where I think Alabama maybe – gets knocked down because people say, oh, they, you know, they lose Brendan Miller. They lose Clowney. They've lost a lot of their scoring relative to what some of those other teams have lost. Um, So there's more of an unknown factor, but even the years that they haven't, you know, two years ago, for instance, Alabama still performed pretty well, you know, won some big games. And even though they weren't a great team at the end, like they still have a knack of winning some big games in the middle of the season, knocking some teams off, having a good year. And even if they don't get over the hump in March this year, they could still very much have a good season. And again, finish in the top four in the SEC. It'll be exciting to watch it unfold. I'm going to have to break out the rule book and figure out what it is I'm watching when it comes to basketball, because I've been covering (laughs) wrestling for the last decade. So that'll be something that's new to me, but seems like this Alabama team is going to be a pretty exciting team to watch. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Shifting gears now, uh, pretty big football game this weekend too, right? The annual third Saturday in October matchup between Alabama and Tennessee. Volunteers are 5-1 and one overall, 2-1 and one against the SEC, and have won three games in a row this season. They also beat Alabama last season, 52-49 in Knoxville. It was a thriller, but they haven't won in Tuscaloosa since 2003. Alabama, of course, 6-1 and one overall, 4-0 and oh in SEC play. Mike, what are your early thoughts on this matchup? Yeah, it's another winnable game, certainly, um, that is also losable. And that's kind of where <laughs> I fall on a team every week. You're like, I can, see, I can see the path for them to win it. I can also see the path for them to lose it. And I don't want to say that's like totally different than before, but it is a little bit different this year where you're just like, I have no idea what's going to happen. You walk in, you're like, Jalen Milrow could throw for 380-yard touchdown passes, get sacked seven times, and throw three interceptions and still win the game. And you're like, I don't know. Like, what are we doing here? So it's, it's fun. Like it's, it's so unpredictable. Even you mentioned like that sequence in uh, that game um, on on Saturday, the Arkansas game where McLaughlin has kind of a bad snap and Milrow wasn't watching and it hits him and Milrow has to (laughs) fall on the ball. That was second down. And we're all just like, what are they doing? Like, this is still a problem in the seventh game of the season where they can't snap the ball. The third down it was a bomb. <laughs> and you're like, ah, I don't even know. Like, that was what a three-play, 75-yard drive that included a 79-yard touchdown pass, like just right. so people understand what we're dealing with here. Right. Yeah. So it's it's wildly unpredictable. Um, you know, the standard deviation for the math geeks out there is quite wide. 
And, um, you know, I, again, I, I think this is a game that people ask me a couple times now, like what's the, the key matchup to watch? And I still think it comes down to Tennessee's running game versus Alabama's front seven. That's strength versus strength. Tennessee's top five rushing team in the country. That's what they're doing well this year. Alabama's defense is top 10 in the country and stopping the run. That's what they're doing well. So, and that's something too, where you can kind of see early in the game, um, kind of where the the line of scrimmage is, you know, where people are getting pushed around. Um, so if Tennessee comes out and has four, five, six yard runs pretty early, and you're starting to see that push, then it's a good indication like that's that's where the battle is going to be won. Um, whereas, you know, if Alabama holds them to zero, one, two yard gains and, you know, they're really forcing Tennessee early to go to the passing game and make Joe, Joe Milton not make mistakes, then, you know, that's a pretty strong indication too. So that's something that, you know, you can kind of watch early on. Um, but it's a game that, again, I, if we're walking out of there Saturday night saying Alabama just lost its second game of the season, like, I want to be shocked, you know, with the way that this team has played. But if we're walking out of there and saying Alabama won convincingly and now is getting ready for LSU and that's basically for the SEC West, then that wouldn't shock me either. So it's that point in the season. Um, it's kind of you put it on the table, put your, your cards on the table and see where you're at. And that's that's kind of what's coming up here. You mentioned Tennessee's run game. Figure we could probably start there then. Um, they're averaging 231 rush yards a game. That's the sixth best nationally. They've got three capable running backs. Jalen Wright, Jabari Small, Dylan Sampson, Joe Milton at quarterback. Obviously mobile. He's got four rushing touchdowns this season. Like you also mentioned, Alabama very good against the run this season, only allowing 104 yards per game. Um, that obviously seems to be a matchup that – you know, I guess maybe on paper probably favors the tide. I don't know. Like, but I, I would also consider this right. Texas A&M has a pretty stout run defense. They held Alabama to 23 yards. Um, they had only been allowing 2.6 yards per carry before last week when Tennessee ran for 232 yards on them at almost five yards a carry. Um, the Vols are good at this. This is what they're going to do. Um, here's a thought. I'm not a full believer in Joe Milton, a quarterback. I know I've said that on and off in various settings all season. Um, other people might be, but I'm not. And while Nick Saban is a much, much smarter, uh, football person than I am, especially when it comes to scheming up effective defenses, I think one thing to consider Alabama should maybe just trust their secondary in this matchup and do whatever they can to stop the run because Jalen Hyatt's not on the other side. You know, he's not on Tennessee's offense this year. He's in the league. Um, and he torched them last year, do whatever you can to sell out and stop the run. What say you? Yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm going to expect. And I think that's probably the guys that Nick Saban trusts the most and seems to have kind of that, I want to say like fatherly figure type, but like him and Kool-Aid and Terrion seem to really be driving right now. Saban, Kool-Aid and Terrion, where they're all on the same page. And I think they Saban knows that he can get what he expects from those two guys. And Caleb Downs, I think is really working his way into that mix too. Um, so if, if he can trust those guys, especially with Tennessee going to run the wide splits, they're going to be way out in the sideline just to handle their business, to do what they need to do, to not get beat, to not make mistakes, to not, you know, get penalized. Then you can load up, even maybe bring key or downs into the box or do something there where you're just selling out against the run and trusting your, your corners to, to make the plays on the outside. Like I could see that being, 
kind of their approach on this one. Um, and you're right. Like they don't have that chess piece, um, you know, what they had with Hyatt last year. They can move him inside, get a safety on him, um, you know, beat you at the speed. Um, you know, check where Brew McCoy is. I don't think, you know, that's potentially going to be a problem for Alabama. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a different sort of game than last year. Like last year, Alabama was a little bit lighter in the box against Tennessee. You know, they were trying to beat what was really at the time one of the best passing offenses in the country. And it's completely flipped this year where now you're trying to beat one of the best rushing offenses in the country. And a passing offense that if Joe Milton's throwing 30, 35 times on Saturday, like I would feel pretty good about that if I'm Alabama. Um, Because I think you can force some mistakes there and get a couple turnovers and that, you know, changes the game a little bit. He had the Milton had that bad pick in the um in the red zone against AM. So uh and you're right though about AM, like they came in to that Tennessee game ranked pretty highly in rush defense. We all saw what that you know defensive front really shut down Alabama's running game and they got pushed around by Tennessee. So you know this is gonna be the biggest test for Alabama rushing wise. Like I think Ole Miss statistically is the best rushing offense they play, but that was Judkins kind of coming off of an injury. They were all out of sorts that day. Um, Arkansas, A&M, Mississippi State are not that great in terms of you know rushing this year. Um, they shut them down except for that second half against Mississippi State. I guess you could say they did well against Texas, um, but as we talked about, you know they didn't have Bijan. And Texas was still able to run the ball at the end of that game and, and kill the clock. So. Um, I don't know if Alabama's seen a combination of an offensive line and running game like they've seen out of Tennessee, and we'll just have to figure out how they do against it. Yeah, I think in many ways it's put the ball in Joe Milton's hands and have him beat you or at least force him to make plays, whether it's with his feet or with his arm. And I think you more or less live with the results. Brew McCoy has been hurt, I know, for most of the season, so they haven't had him. Um, you know, so I don't know that they've really had a lot of reliable receiving options or at least explosive receiving options. Cause I know Joe Milton can throw a ball out of the stadium, but, um, you know, if you force him to drop back and maybe go through his reads and force him to hang onto the ball a little bit longer than maybe he wants to one Alabama's pass rush could get home and two, um, you could kind of force him to make a mistake, right? Like just, if you, if you just force him to have to make decisions like that, like I, you're betting on him, not always making the right decision and, you know, that could just be, you know, lean on your secondary to make plays. Um, you know, I think this becomes a crucial, you know, it, it's Malachi Moore is a game time decision. Nick Saban said so Wednesday night. Um, you know, if he comes back and plays, I think that could help in the run game because um, I think they'd like to probably keep Caleb Downs, you know, on the back end. But he's also physical enough that he could come out, you know, come into the box and help with the run game as well. Um, you know, so there's a lot of different factors at play here, but. I that's that was one thought that I had sell out to stop the run and just trust your secondary on the back end because they've been very good this year. And it's still like you said, I think betting on Milton is still the right word because it's still a gamble in the sense that Milton is still talented um, and he, you know, very much capable of breaking off a long run like with his legs. If you, if you drop a bunch of guys in man coverage and everybody's turned and Milton runs like that's dangerous um, and his arm, you know, if, if there is an open receiver, then you can hit them. Like you can make you hurt. Like it's, so it's a different strategy. Like, you know, Max Johnson a couple weeks ago, like you can just worry about stopping Max Johnson or just worry about stopping everything else. I mean, and then just have Max Johnson and you're not really worried about him killing you. Yeah. You can, 
kind of do it the same way and say, all right, we're going to put the ball in Milton's hands, but there's still a wider range of outcomes with Joe Milton compared to Max Johnson. And it could be on that better range for Tennessee where Milton's talent all of a sudden shows up and, uh, you know, he has a big game. Uh, so that's just, again, it's a, it's a gamble, it's a risk, but that's probably the direction Alabama is going to try to go. Yeah, and I know Tennessee had a lot of success last year, and it was, you know, mostly because they had a guy like Jalen Hyatt who had that game-breaking speed, you know, that pre-snap motion into a stack alignment. It really confused the secondary. They just weren't able to get a hold of that over the course of four quarters, and Hyatt made them pay. Um, you know, and then I think back to the Texas game where it took a while, but once Steve Sarkeesian was able to figure out, um, you know, okay, what motion-based matchups do I want to try and create? Um, he ultimately, you know, if you go back and watch the game, he ultimately put Caleb Downs in a little bit of a pickle on a lot of those plays. And that's what led to a lot of the big plays over the top in the, um, you know, like late third, early fourth quarter when Texas was able to pull away. Um, you know, I don't know that Tennessee quite has the weapons to do stuff like that, but I wonder how much they try to showcase that early on just to maybe, you know, make Alabama's defense think a little bit more. And, and who knows, like the way they line up with those wide splits, you know, pre-snap motion, that could pull a safety out of the box and then you've got a six yard run. So I, these are a lot of little things that we're probably going to be watching early on in the game, just to try and see what Tennessee does and how Alabama reacts to it. Yeah, definitely. And that's, it's one of those things where, you know, the first quarter doesn't always tell the story, but I think sometimes you do get a good feel probably more in a running game than a passing game of, of how things are going to go, because that's more physically, you know, can you physically dominate the other guy on the other side of you? Um, and you can tell, especially in Alabama plays like a non-conference team, you know, they play Chattanooga a month from now. You're probably going to be able to run the ball pretty early because your guys are simply better than their guys. You know, the passing game, like Ole Miss, for instance, they come out passing a little bit. Sometimes that's more scheme and you're kind of scheming guys open and you kind of see something on film you can exploit, but then they adjust and then you still have to do it the rest of the game. Whereas with the running game, you can physically dominate a guy in the first quarter. It's only going to help you because you're wearing that guy down more and more as the game goes on. So um, there's, let's say, more value to watching that early and, and kind of drawing conclusions early in the game from the running game compared to the passing game. Yeah. Alabama's offense facing a pretty stiff challenge. Again, Tennessee has 24 sacks this season, which is the sixth most nationally, third most in the SEC. They've also recorded 52 tackles for loss, which is the seventh most nationally and the second most in the SEC. They fly around and they apply pressure, not unlike Texas A&M. I feel like we've been talking about the Aggies quite a bit, um, which at first made me wonder, like, Alabama replicate a similar game plan that they used in College Station, except for the, you know, except the fact that you're going to give up sacks um, and then do your best to protect Jalen Milrow and just try for some deep shots down the field. Um, I would argue that maybe Tennessee secondaries are uh, considered a little bit better than Texas A&M. They've got six interceptions, 24 pass breakups, a little bit more speed on the back end. Um, so you could try that, or you could also try what Florida did successfully, which was a little bit more ball, ball control, right? The Gators ran the ball 43 times, um, 183 yards. They held the ball for nearly 40 minutes in a 29-16 win in Gainesville. I know Tennessee never wins in Gainesville, so that's part of, probably part of this equation too, but um, that has their only loss of the season so far. Um, you also have to consider that Alabama's rushing efficiency, not great this season, not great in run blocking, um, very much that home run or strikeout, um, you know, run game and really the entire offense that we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's just, you know, it's it, and especially so in the run game, right? They either run for nothing or they run for 10. Like it just, you know, which one are you going to get on a play to play? Um, 
a lot of different ideas here. Um, do you play ball control? Do you do the same thing you did against AM? Do you try and lean a little bit more on Jalen Milrow in the run game? I know that Arkansas and AM kind of took that away because they had a little bit more speed at linebacker to kind of spy him a little bit and, and not allow him to get outside the tackles. Um, I pose to you, Mike, what what do you think should be Alabama's offensive game plan on Saturday? I mean, there's sometimes some games you're like, I don't even know what the game plan is. You know, they try to do certain <laughs> things and just doesn't really work and then they go to something else and um so there's not always like a coherent like here's what they're trying to do in a neat little package but it's usually uh, not until like midway through the third quarter where i'm like oh that's what you're trying to do <laughs> right yeah and you might say like oh like they're not really trying to run the ball with Jalen milroad and all of a sudden like it may not even be a design run but it's like he breaks off a big one and that you know helps them and yeah, the 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 past first run option or the pat the pass run option. I think that's the way I phrased it the last few weeks. Like if right. the first read or the second read aren't there, like go. Like <laughs> yep. yeah. But I, I think, you know, I think they're still gonna try with the running game. I think you have to. I think that's still the way this team is built. I think that's still uh, you know, the goal overall um is to control the ball, run the ball, you know, shorten the game, eliminate turnovers. Like I don't think they necessarily want to be throwing the ball over the yard and some of those plays were just there the last couple games i mean what was it isaiah bond against a&m wide open it was just there like you take it a&m or uh, arkansas uh prentice wide open you take it amari nyblock in the end zone wide open you just got to take it so curious secondary decisions the last right (laughs) and arkansas clean that up like in the second half arkansas really eliminated their pretty big mistakes coverage wise against Alabama and Jalen Milrow was he, not good. He missed eight in a row, but like I would argue that probably two or three of the, the eight were on him. You know, one of them, I mean, Jalen Hill tried to high point the ball, just couldn't come down with it. Um, you know, there, there were a, a couple catch. others that he put it within the vicinity for the receiver to get it and they just didn't get it. Or in so. down towards the pylon. There's a couple catches. You're like, all right, like you got a hand on it, you know, by rule, I guess that's a drop but it was a tough throw to bring in. Um, right. Yeah. Get a couple throws that he was definitely off, but I wouldn't say that all the drops or all the incompletions were solely right. on him. Anyway. It wasn't like there was these 50 yard passes just waiting for him. Uh, like there, like there was in the first half. So yeah. again, I think, I don't think that's necessarily the goal of this offense or like the, uh, like unless those plays are there, I don't think they're going to try to make them be there. And I'm not trying to sound like James Franklin, but like, you know, <laughs> sometimes you just have to take what's there and you're not trying to create anything. So right. uh, at the end of the day, if they can run the ball 40 times and get 200 yards and Milrow's thrown the ball 15 times and he's accurate and efficient and not turning the ball over, like, I think that's still what they view as like the way they need to do things and the way that's going to get them somewhere. So um, that would still be, what I expect their game plan to be. But I also, I don't know Tennessee's defense in and out in terms of like where their, their personnel is, is best suited to stop Alabama and where it might not be. So very good front seven. Um, They apply a lot of pressure. They got guys who can rush the passer. So I don't know that they can just, you know, well, maybe you get if they load it up on the left side and just, you know, punish Proctor and Pritchett, um, you know, they could rush for and get away with it. But like they're, they're going to send linebackers. They're going to send guys. They've got a lot of productive guys in the front seven. Um, you know, secondary is still good. I think they're a lot more competent than A&M, but just based on what I've seen and what I've heard, um, you know, it's it's 
they're going to have it's, it's they're going to have to deal with it. Like they're going to have to win up front again. Yeah. And that's again, it's going to be the story every single week. It's like how does the offensive line pass protect? How does the offensive line block? Can they snap the ball? Can they not make dumb penalties? Like they can do it well against Tennessee, but the same questions are going to come up against LSU. I think I mentioned it last week on the show. You just never know week to week sometimes with this line. And I don't say this line in terms of like it's the same players, but two years ago they had the terrible game against Auburn and they come out the next week and they have an awesome game against Georgia's front seven that sent 15 players to the NFL. Like you just can't figure it out sometimes. It's like, where does this stuff come from? But um, it's going to be the story every single week because I think it matters that much to their success is – is the offensive line and particularly the left tackle spot. Like if, if they can get that cleaned up, if the left tackle can be competent, then the rest of the offense, I think will flow a lot better. Yeah. The more I think about this game, the more I think we could see similar game plans from both teams, um, you know, stop the run, apply pressure and make the opposing quarterback beat you, whether it's with his armors legs. Right. Like I think being at home matters for Alabama. Um, the defense has shown that they'll come to play every game. And Joe Milton doesn't scare me nearly as much as Hendon Hooker did, um, along with Jalen Hyatt, or at least would have last year. Um, so like most games, again, all eyes are probably on Milrow. If he can take care of the ball, use his legs as a weapon, either as a pure runner or to manipulate the Tennessee defense, which we've seen a little bit of in recent weeks. Um, I think they'll like where they're at offensively. Um, you know, then again, they could be coming up with another game plan that I, you know, we just don't know about and we won't find out until, you know, what first, second quarter on Saturday. But, you know, I, th- I think if they're just, you know, able to do that, right, like take care of the ball um, and let Milrow create a little bit or at least maybe design a, a plan that, you know, protects him in the pocket a little bit, um, you know, I something like 28-20 probably makes sense. Um you know, but when does the, you know, a rivalry game in the SEC ever actually make full sense, right? Like I thought it was going to be a defensive slugfest against A&M and they actually hit the over. So you, know, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it's, you know. And I was just thinking back, Tennessee didn't have Cedric Tillman last year at wide receiver. And that was kind of the big story going into the game was like, oh, they're without their top receiver. Like, how are they going to be able to throw the ball? And Hyatt, like, he, wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't the most heralded guy coming into that game. I mean, I was just looking back at his, his game log before that. He did have a touchdown against Alabama in 2020. But for the most part, he's a guy who had, you know, one or two, three catches a game, you know, 15, 20 yards, might have gone over 50 a few times, had a good game against Akron last year. And all of a sudden you see six catches, 207 yards and five touchdowns against Alabama. So I don't say he came out of nowhere, but it's like, Sometimes there is a guy that's just kind of waiting for that opportunity, and um, he got it. And then after that, Hyatt, the next week, at 174 yards, 138 the week after that, two weeks after that, 146. Like We should use this guy more. He's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, he was just kind of like, <laughs> and then, all right, he's there. So, you know, it, it's a little bit dangerous sometimes to count out a team completely just because there is – or a position group completely just because there's an injury. And um, a team like Tennessee obviously still has some talented guys and – I'm sure that would be Nick Saban's message here today on the Pat McAfee show and tonight on his radio show that, um, you know, Tennessee is explosive and they have a great passing game and a quarterback who's capable of making those plays. Like I think Saban's going to be talking that part of it up because I don't think he wants his players thinking that all they need to do is stop the run. I do hope that McAfee finally, and by the time this gets up on YouTube, the McAfee show with Saban will probably already be up and gone, but 
Um, anybody who's watched has noticed that like it's Saban does these things in his office and the Tennessee notebook is always on the top of his desk and it has been all year. So I wonder if this will be the week that McAfee finally asked him about it. Like, Hey, it's finally time to open up that notebook and, and see what we're going to do on Saturday. Somebody asked, it was one of his uh, co-hosts asked him, I think it was the last week or two weeks ago. Saban didn't really react to it because it was part of a bigger question, but yeah, it's been there. It hasn't moved. Um, and I think it was like a Baltimore Ravens binder right above that. It hasn't moved either. So maybe the Ravens too. <laughs> maybe Saban's desk is just a huge front. It's just there for show. And it's like he has a different working office somewhere else. And it's like, you know, you go to meet the governor and it's just like a ceremonial office. And it's the same stuff on there. It's been there for 20 years. Like this I is my know. podcast background. And then this is where I actually get work done. <laughs> no, that, that was, I mean, I remember state house tours growing up in Massachusetts. It's like, here's the governor's office and then there was like a little room down the hall it's like here's the actual desk that the governor uses to like work two completely different spaces obviously Saban actually uses that office but it is funny how nothing on his desk has really moved over the last couple of weeks on that show just like knowing that he like everything is intentional with that guy like I'm just I'm curious like I don't know like I'd, I, I I would love to ask him that like in a season exit interview just like hey the McAfee interviews like that was you did that for a reason right like why like <laughs> he probably won't answer it he'll probably talk to people in this state that's where we're gonna hear we've heard it all week heard it every year it's kind of the same same story about Tennessee every year here he is he's, he's probably campaigning for the SEC to keep Alabama Tennessee when they you know start to you know change up the schedules here moving forward after they you know I don't know what they'll end up doing but you know hey this is an important game to us. Keep it here. This is why. Uh, sometimes he, roll, he like verbally rolls his eyes at funny questions like that. Sometimes, like right. he want, he you know, he'll take like a, and then he'll answer the question, and it's just like, thanks for humoring me, but like I really want to know what you think. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean McAfee, I think can get away with a lot more than we can get away with, and a little bit more of a a formal setting in a news conference. You know, we can't have these long drawn out diatribes before a question and ask ridiculous things like it's just not maybe we need to ask paramount to shell out a million dollars a week so that well, i was gonna say there's question. a reason it's it <laughs> up with it um so again it's just a different environment so that's kind of how mcafee gets away with it but yeah you can see saban's reaction he's like man like, i think there was one time where mcafee used to a curse word that I won't use on this show. And Saban just kind of looked down. He's like, couldn't even believe that it was being said. <laughs> and like something that just never happens, like in any sort of other setting that he's been interviewed in. Oh man. That's a little bit off track here, but that's, that's very, very entertaining. Any final thoughts on uh, Alabama, Tennessee before we close it out, Mike? No. Um, like I said, I, I don't know. That's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's the beauty of this season. Um, you know, it makes it fun. I think it makes it fun for the fans, to be honest. Like, there the word was I keep using for fans yeah. is anxious. So I don't, I don't know if they're having fun, but they're like, you know, right? It, it's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely, you know, and fans hate when Saban uses the word anxiety for his own players, but I think it's true for fans. Like, there's anxiety that comes with watching these games. Even last year is like coming down to the last drive and Alabama can't move the ball into field goal range well enough and Riker misses the field goal. And then there's whatever it was, 20, 30 seconds left on the clock and Tennessee goes back down and hits the field goal. Like there's a lot of back and forth anxiety with that one. 
But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it makes it fun because there's there's so many times in the first four years of covering this team where it's like fans just kind of, I want to say grow tired of it, but it's like, all right, we won another game by 30 points, 40 points, stadium's half empty by the third quarter. Like, I don't say it's boring. Like, fans, I think, enjoy that, but there's a different sort of nerve or muscle that it works when you're watching a game that means something in the fourth quarter that is coming down to each single play and each single player. Like, and the, I mean, the TV ratings reflected too. I think those those games do a lot better than Alabama just, you know, pouring forty points on Mississippi State in a in a heartbeat. Hundred um, percent, and it's entertaining for us at the very least, which is usually all I ask for when it comes to whatever teams I'm covering. One final note, because uh, you did mention that Will Record missed field goal last year, and that's ultimately what led to well, not ultimately what led to, but part of what led to Tennessee winning that game in Knoxville last year. Dude hasn't missed a field goal since. Knock on wood, he's hit 26 in a row, 13 of 13 this year. I believe seven of the 13 this year are from 40-plus, which means 11 of the 26 in a row have been from 40-plus yards. Guy's been pretty automatic, also a decent punter as well. Um, so just, hey, shout-out Will Reichard. Um, having a good season, having a good career, came back to uh, bolster his NFL stock, and it seems like he's doing it. <coughs> Maybe he'll have to make a big kick this weekend. I think that'd be kind of fun. Yeah, and that's something, too, where Saban's mentioned a few times this year about NAL, helping a guy out um, in terms of maybe you're a little bit uncertain about the NFL. You come back, you try to fix what needs to be fixed, in this case, kickoffs for Reichard, and you're able to make some money doing it. And in his case, he's married. He lives at home with his wife. It's like you're kind of living the professional NFL lifestyle, but you're still in college um, and you're getting paid. So it's different than how things used to be, and it's – you know, people like to rail against NIL and Saban's point there was, you know, that's a positive uh, outcome or a positive change that's brought about, brought about by NIL. hundred percent. Um, that's all we've got today. Kickoff on Saturday, 2.30 PM central games on CBS. We will be back Sunday or Monday to recap the game. In the meantime, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, even our Bama 247 YouTube page. Subscribe to Bama 247 and 247 Sports. Guys, you can get a subscription for a dollar a month to start and then just $10 a month thereafter. For the best coverage of your favorite team, take advantage of that, especially if you're an Alabama fan. Mike, thank you so much for joining again. To everybody listening, thank you so much as well. We will talk to you all again soon. Producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.